That means a whole lot of internet maybe is really bad background noise. And a lot of parents out there are just on social media excessively and they're hearing bad things. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to Christ and Culture. We have an excellent show lined up for you today. In our Christ and Culture conversation, we're going to talk with local Dr. Lori Langdon, an accomplished pediatrician here in North Carolina, talking with her about COVID, masks, vaccines, and many more sensitive conversations that I'm sure no one's going to care anything about. Dr. Well, Keithley? Uh, she uh, tells us exactly what she thinks on these issues, and I appreciate that. And after that, we'll debut a new segment in which we answer your hard questions. But first, let's begin with a new segment entitled In the News. Hurricane Ida hit the Gulf Coast last weekend, leaving widespread suffering in the region, almost 16 years to the day after Hurricane Katrina. Dr. Keithley, our listeners may not know that you were living in New Orleans during the time that Katrina hit. Given your experience, how can we pray for those affected by Hurricane Ida? It's uh, poignant that Hurricane Ida hit on the 16th anniversary to the day. And one thing I do remember for so many families in the New Orleans area, school just started. And so the way that you can pray for those who are affected by this storm, this means that the school children of that region who lost last year because of COVID— Now we're just starting to return to school, and once again, uh, their school schedule is completely upended. So we need to pray for the schools and the children attending those schools. Certainly pray in that regard. And there's also ways that we can put feet uh, to our prayers in by taking part uh, with the North American Mission Board Send Relief. That is the arm of the Southern Baptist Convention by which we are able to help those that are in disaster situations. It is our disaster relief agency. Mm-hmm. And so there are a great number of opportunities. If you just want to Google North American Mission Board Send Relief, you'll find opportunities that you can either give or take part. COVID has returned with a vengeance in recent weeks, and the rise in cases has coincided with back-to-school routines. Parents, teachers, and administrators are trying to make wise choices about masks, vaccines, COVID precautions. Most of all, they're asking questions about their children's safety. And when it comes to these COVID precautions, we've witnessed increased tension and debate in the public square and on our social media feeds also. So to help us think about these topics from a medical perspective, We're delighted to have with us Dr. Lori Langdon. Dr. Langdon is an accomplished pediatrician here in North Carolina, where she has practiced medicine for more than 25 years. She's also a wife, mother, and faithful Christian who actively serves in her local church. Dr. Langdon, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So back earlier in the year, back in June, I was watching and keeping track of how many people were getting vaccinated and how the number of people in the hospital was dropping, the number of cases was dropping, the number of deaths was dropping. It was, it was really looking good at the beginning of summertime. Yes. Along comes the Delta variant. 
how unique is the Delta variant from previous strands of COVID? And, uh, and then a follow-up question, does it affect children differently? So yes, I think we all shared that great disappointment. We felt like we had achieved this public health victory and we were headed into better times and then the Delta variant came along. So unfortunately, Delta variant, uh, patients who have it have a higher viral load and it's much more transmissible than the original coronavirus. So fortunately, the vaccines, all three of the ones available in the United States, Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J, are all effective against the Delta variant. The problem that's happening, though, is that we're now realizing that the antibody counts can wane over a certain amount of time. So we think that the troubles we're seeing now, while it's primarily still a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it is true that folks who are vaccinated can catch the Delta variant and even pass it on. Now, they're not as likely to. You're five times more likely to catch and thereby be able to transmit if you're unvaccinated you're 20 times more likely to be hospitalized if you're unvaccinated. So the vaccines still hold our largest shot at getting rid of this. Now, um, we can also, of course, talk about the mask mandate. The reason I feel so strongly about it is specifically because the Delta variant does not have the kindness towards children that the original strain did. And so we are seeing more pediatric hospitalizations. We're seeing more of this thing we're very concerned about called the multi-system inflammatory syndrome of children. It's affected 4,404 kids since May of 2020, according to the CDC. And from those cases, 37 of those passed away. And so it's a really serious disease that requires uh, admission to the pediatric intensive care unit. So we're quite concerned about the Delta variant in children, which is why, because we also love face-to-face instruction, we're very adamant about a mask mandate in schools. Yeah, well, there's a lot of conversations about masks and schools. You started to answer this already. Mm -hmm. From a medical perspective, do you find that they're effective in preventing the spread? And how how would you counsel parents in this regard? Yes, we do. So I would love to uh, direct you guys to something called the ABC Science Collaborative. It was co-chaired by two pediatricians at Duke University, one of whom, Dr. Danny Benjamin, who's pediatric infectious disease specialist, I did all three years of residency with. So he's a wonderful old friend. And um, he co-chaired this along with one of the pediatric critical care physicians, Kanisha Zimmerman. And this collaborative looked, it involved physicians from 13 states and they uh, analyzed data from hundred different school districts in the state of North Carolina. And they found that if all the students are masked, the chances of individual in school COVID transmission is actually quite low. So when you combine the urgency of students to have face-to-face instruction with documented data that masking is an effective way to let that happen safely, you see why we're so urgent and adamant about the mask mandate. We just, the American Academy of Pediatrics just feels like children need to be taught in face-to-face instruction. You know, we already have this huge gap in educational milestones from last year. And so if we keep on all virtual, it's just not good. It's not good for those students. They need to see other students. They need to have teachers who care about them 
and are involved in their lives. Many of them need the food they get at breakfast and at lunch. They need another adult to be in their life to report signs of abuse. So as you can see, for just multiple reasons, especially when you consider children with special needs, maybe the autistic children, children who need the therapies that they can receive in public school, they're not getting them and they haven't gotten them for 18 months now. And that's really quite alarming for us. So we absolutely need children to be back in school and we believe masks are the way to make that happen. Dr. Langdon, when we talk about the Delta variant, uh, I'm just speaking very personally, this hits really close to home for me and my family. Um, back early in the summer, my daughter went to church camp she came back with the 25 kids who were on that church camp bus and half of them were infected. We didn't know that until two or three days later. Actually, that very week, I was supposed to go get my first vaccine. As it turns out, my whole family basically gets COVID. One question that I have then is if, if I now I do want to get the vaccine, but how long yeah. does one wait after being infected with COVID to do that? That's a great question. And three months is the answer. And so a lot of people have wondered about natural immunity. Do we trust natural immunity alone? And uh, the official answer is no, we would still encourage you to get vaccinated because we believe from studies that the antibodies are gonna last longer from the vaccine, particularly the double dose of the uh, messenger RNA vaccines. So we'd still encourage you to do that, but your natural immunity from having had the infection should last you a solid three months. You mentioned the messenger RNA vaccines. I hear a lot of concern, particularly from young women who are concerned about, okay, I'm hoping maybe to have children uh, in the near future. Yes. And, 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 and they express concerns about the fact that it is an mRNA vaccine. How would you alleviate their concerns? Yes, I would love to address that. So remember, that you have to be certain about the quality of the information you're receiving. And I will try to say this delicately. There is an industry of anti-vaxxers out there whose sole purpose is to confuse you and to scare you and to drive you away from looking at science. And this matters a lot to me because it's also jeopardized my relationship with patients and their parents. And it is putting a wedge in the trust and relationship I used to have. And it just makes me furious and sad. So I need for the people that are most scared to think about why they first became scared. Was it that post on Facebook that they read that was written by a moron? And the people that I might have had to unfriend on Facebook because it was making me have unchristlike thoughts towards them. I knew them in high school and they didn't get a good grade in high school biology. You've got to know your sources. So first, please, if you're scared, I want you to look at good sources. I want you to find somebody who's trained in reading studies and can recognize a peer-reviewed, double-blinded, placebo-controlled, evidence-based study, okay? And that's not where this hysteria is coming from, I promise you. So if you have a pediatrician you can trust, talk to them. If you have an OB you can trust, talk to them. We all are parts of huger organizations. For example, I'm a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we have to follow the science and we have to use evidence-based recommendations. Same for uh, moms, ask them to, tell, to, to speak about this with their uh, uh, OBGYN. They're a member of the American College of OBGYN, ACOG. ACOGs come out supporting COVID-19 vaccines, even in the already pregnant, even in the lactating moms. We documented that COVID-19 antibodies cross through the breast milk. It would be IgA, that's the mucosal antibody. That would be very helpful for an infant. And uh, pregnant moms themselves are actually one of the very high risk groups. So I would strongly encourage people to get the vaccine even before they're considering trying to get pregnant 
while they are pregnant and while they're lactating. Absolutely. So again, uh, the messenger RNA does not get into your DNA. Think about the cell from high school. Remember it had a nucleus, that's where your DNA lives. This messenger RNA is wrapped, the little message is wrapped in a lipid. It crosses through that phospholipid bilayer, goes into your cytoplasm, that's outside the nucleus. It goes straight to the ribosomes, which are the protein making factory. That ribosome makes the spike protein. Then your cell presents the spike protein on the surface and that triggers your body's own immune system to make antibodies against that very specific thing. Then the message itself just goes away. That's not long-term. So I hope that helps you know this does not affect fertility in any way. That was a hoax from the anti-vaxxers. This does not alter your DNA. And bonus points, there are no microchips in the vaccines. There's no brain control from the government from 5G towers. It's fabulous. Dr. Langdon, if you had been my biology teacher, I would have gone to medical school. I learned more in the last 30 seconds than I've learned in the last 30 days. Um, tell, me about, uh, tell me about vaccines for kids. And there's a couple of concerns here. One is, is it going to be safe for them whenever it's uh, available in North Carolina? But then secondly, I'm curious as well, your thoughts, is this something that we can expect to be forced upon our kids? And how do we think about that? So let's talk about where we are now. So right now, with the original emergency youth authorization for the Pfizer product, it was already down to 16. Moderna is 18 above, Pfizer is 16 and above, J&J is also 18 and above. But early summer, the Pfizer got emergency use authorization down to um, 12. We can do 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. So we're 12 and up for Pfizer. So what's in discussion right now, and that's been going fine, and they had huge pre-marketing trials, plenty of numbers. None of this, I hope everybody understands, even before it achieves official FDA recognition, they still had to follow all the same rules. So in the very original, now older trials, greater than 30,000 patients in the phase three trials before they got approved for even emergency use. So the full FDA approval was only a matter of time and some pre-existing rules about time. So I hope that wasn't for some people a problem because now, you know, Pfizer does have full FDA as of Monday of this week for uh, 16 and up. So we're still under emergency use for the 12 to 15 year olds. Okay, so let's talk five to 11. For the adolescents, that was already the full adult dose. So 12 and up, full adult dose, did the same trial studies and everything as the adults. But for under that, we're, they're looking at different doses and that's the holdup. We want it to hurry up and get to the market. I know the American Academy of Peds is really pushing, let's get these children protected. We want them back in school. The problem is these things take time because we have to monitor antibody production. And the goal of the trials is to figure how small of a dose can we give them that is still enough to generate protective levels of antibody production. And what's too high of a dose that can make them have more of a response, especially on that second dose, because it triggers so much of your immune system's response, it can make you feel kind of yucky, you know, the fevers and the chills and the joint aches and just fatigue and things like that. So we're trying to minimize side effects, maximize antibody production, and that's why this is taking a while. The original projections had said maybe they would be available by September for five to 11 year olds, but now we're looking at probably December. So it's one of those things, we don't wanna rush them, we want it to get here. I would love to have a COVID vaccine down to age five because that's school age and we could get them all back in school easier. And one good analogy, you guys have probably already heard this, I think it's from the CDC, but it's as if your vaccine is a raincoat. And if it's just sprinkling outside, a raincoat's plenty. 
But if it is pouring, which it is right now, we have a large population of unvaccinated folks in North Carolina. We have a surge of Delta you know, variant right now. So it's pouring out there right now. So the umbrella is your mask. I would love it if the kids had a raincoat and an umbrella right now for the surge. The other good news is, if y'all don't know this, in the UK, which had the Delta variant and they had a horrible surge and a peak. And then at some point, it just stopped. Maybe because it was so contagious, it just spread and infected everybody. And then it achieved its own herd immunity and went away. We don't know. So that's the prayer request is that somehow miraculously we'll have one of those crashes. And please know we'll change our recommendations. If the population has suddenly a much lower rate of infection, new cases, hospitalizations, and death, we'll start backing off some of these protective measures, just as we had done this past summer when things were looking so much better. So some then, especially those who maybe lean more towards the anti-vax or, you know, whatever category you want to use there, when they hear FDA approved, their approach to that is that means it's going to be forced on our kids, that they're not going to be able to go back to school unless they've had the vaccine, it'll be required of them. Does that infringe upon our religious rights? How do you think about that as a doctor and as a mom? So you have to be careful because, you know, I'm a rabid vaxxer. <laughs> and, and so, whoa, um, forced, I think is a strong word. We do have vaccine requirements already. So it's nothing new. I have been a little bit bothered by some of this uh, medical freedom stuff and nurse groups protesting getting their COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I hope you know, I had to have, everybody did, had to have titers drawn before medical school to make sure I was immune to hepatitis B, for example and multiple other titers. And I had to have all my vaccines up to date to even go to medical school because, because I would have some patient contact, right? And that's almost sort of an OSHA thing. It's to protect me, the employee or student, as much as it is to protect the patients. So this is not a new concept. This is not governmental control for healthcare personnel to need some protective vaccinations. This has been done for as long as we've had vaccines. So I have been a little confused as to why suddenly this is a big political thing and, and why we need our freedoms and why nurses are so angry about wanting to get vaccinated. So I think maybe trying to not be judgmental, they need some more education. Maybe they don't understand that this is not a new policy. This is nothing new at all. And, and I would really be concerned about patients who are being exposed to healthcare workers who aren't vaccinated. So I would say that we already have mandatory vaccines for public school, and I support mandatory vaccines for public school for measles and mumps and rubella and diphtheria and tetanus and pertussis and polio. You get the idea. Um, the whole entire routine childhood vaccine. I don't think anyone has contemplated yet making the COVID vaccine mandatory for school. I can't speak to that. We'll see what happens. I would recommend it. I don't know that I would force it to be on the mandatory list because this could all be temporary. In two years, we may be talking about a different thing. Let's pray it's not Ebola. You know, I, I think if this was, if, if COVID was our trial to prepare us for the next thing, let's hope we do better next time <laughs> as far as passing and not being compliant with recommendations from experts. So I would say in the past, I have confronted some people who claimed religious exemption for vaccinations pre-COVID. And this was maybe not the best of me, but I was just so curious because I am no theologian as you guys are, but I know my way around the minor prophets. I, I can, I got a lot of quote and I can do with some scriptures. And I was just, it was just my curiosity and maybe a, a little tiny piece of meanness or feistiness. So I had a patient, it was a first office visit. And in my old practice, we had a vaccine policy. 
they couldn't remain with us if they persistently refused to vaccinate. I said, I can't find his vaccine records uh, since he's a first office visit. And she said, oh, it's because he doesn't have any. He's never been vaccinated. And I said, oh, well, we'll talk about that. Let's deal with what you're here for today first. And uh, she said, his older siblings aren't vaccinated either. And I said, oh, where do they go to school? Public school. Well, how do they go to public school? Because, you know, vaccines are required for public school. She said, it's easy peasy. You just check a little box that says religious exemption. And, you know, that's my blood pressure started rising and my face probably turned red. That's why masks are nice these days, because if you're mad, you can't, they can't see it because your face isn't as red. But I said, oh, that's so curious. I happen to be a student of the scripture. And I would just love if you could give me, we call it the address, could you just give me a chapter and a verse on that? I would love to understand that I have patients who are Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, and many of their verses to explain why they don't allow blood transfusions come from Leviticus. And I don't agree with it, but I understand where it came from. I would love to understand how your religion means that you don't need vaccinations for your children. Just And she said, I don't have a religion. I don't believe in vaccines. And I don't believe the Bible says anything relevant to my children's medical care. Well, then I was just like, well, let me just pause and have a seizure. Lord have mercy. So she had just discredited all the vaccines and all the scripture in one sentence. Woo, thank goodness we had a vaccine policy. So she was discharged. Oh, so I did answer her with a few verses, you know, all that I could come up with on a, a moment's notice that we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and, and so we, God gave us brains, and God gave us immunologists, and pharmacists, and all the experts to develop vaccines all over the years, but so I would always be curious to engage in a friendly conversation around someone who truly has a religious exemption to vaccines. I can't find the support in the word. And, and I'd love to debate it, look at it, read about it, if they legitimately had an argument. But every single one who I've challenged on that, and I promise you I was gentler than this in that face-to-face, -face, but I, I would really love to know, everyone has said it's a farce and they're faking and they don't even have religion or believe any scriptural authority at all. So I think they're just making it up. I just want to ask you about, if you're talking to someone, and I'm thinking about people in my own family, people in my own church who they're not mad about anything. They're not trying to go on Fox News or MSNBC yeah. and claim, or, or, you know, they're not walking around with petition signs. They're just scared. And when it comes to the vaccine, they just don't know who to believe. Some of them that come to mind are they work in hospitals. They're not sure if they're being infringed upon. They're not sure what they what they think about the vaccines or their or their moms of children who are going to public schools. They're just with respect to vaccines. They're just afraid. And they're confused by all the noise. How would you just, as a friend, as a sister in Christ, as a, as a mother and wife, how would you counsel someone like that who's just not sure how to think about it? So I would like to encourage you to find a trusted professional resource. I would say your individual pediatrician would be a good one if your concerns are about um, anything in the pediatric world. Most pediatricians are going to stay on top of their game as far as the latest recommendations and would have been very well educated as to the history of vaccines, the development of vaccines. If you're most concerned about the current COVID-19 vaccine, there are a lot of good resources that you can access that explain how it was developed, how this messenger RNA technology has been around for many years. This was not rushed. This is science that was already established. We had a SARS-1 vaccine ready to go. I don't know if you remember that, and then SARS-1 just disappeared. Praise God, we didn't need it. But all of the same exact technology we're using now, as far as the messenger RNA vaccine goes, has been 
in the works for years. So find a trusted, respected authority expert and then believe them. So it's very hard when I have a patient that I love, and you guys just don't know how much I love my patients. Literally, I would take them home and love them and raise them and send them to college and they would be mine. I love them personally. And it breaks my heart and hurts my feelings when I explain to them, you really need to get the routine childhood vaccines or for the adolescents, I really think that you should get this COVID-19 vaccine if you're 12 and older. And they say, we're just too scared. We've read too many scary things on the internet. So I would say, guys, I've done the research literally and I've had statistics and epidemiology and I know how to do quality research and I support this vaccine. All of my children have had this vaccine. I have had this vaccine. My husband has had this vaccine. All of my parents have had this vaccine. There is no conspiracy and I am not getting kickbacks or I would live in a larger house and drive a nicer car. There are no kickbacks. I promise there's no conspiracy. There's no big pharma paying me off. I encourage you to get your children vaccinated simply because I care about them. I love your children and I want them to be happy and healthy. And I want it to be safe to go to public school and be around a lot of other children. So I want them to find somebody they trust and then believe them. And I want them to try to turn down the noise in their head from the internet and from social media right now. And I'm sorry, this is completely a misinterpretation of this, but you know <laughs> that Satan is the prince of the year right now. So I'm thinking <laughs> that needs a whole lot of internet maybe is really bad background noise. And a lot of parents out there are just on social media excessively and they're hearing bad things. And it turns out that a lot of people that are anti-science and anti-vaccine seem to have a lot of time on their hands. They have time to mount these huge public campaigns against people who are encouraging folks to get vaccines. So you shouldn't trust me if I had stock in Pfizer or Moderna or J&J. I don't. You shouldn't trust me if I was getting kickbacks to make these recommendations. I don't. I simply do this because I care about you. That's the same motivation I have for the YouTube channel. I want to encourage parents and reassure parents. And so if I, I feel happy if I can encourage them, educate them, and reassure them, then that was my goal. But I'm getting no benefit from encouraging folks to get vaccinated except for public health measures improve. Dr. Lane, one thing I, I know for sure, and that is we're going to get a lot of responses from uh, this podcast. And I mean that in a good way. What resources do you have available? I know you have a YouTube channel. Tell our listeners where they might be able to find more and hear more about what you have to say. Yes, you are so kind. So let me uh, tell you about that. So the address for my YouTube channel is Dr. Langdon. You just have to spell out Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R Langdon, L-A-N-G-D-O-N. Someone had already taken D-R Langdon. I think they were an archaeologist. And um, also, I personally use the Vaccine Education Center out of the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as an excellent resource about all things vaccine. They have excellent studies, data, videos that are on a parent's understanding level, an excellent resource. You can even download an app, Vaccine Education Center from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Excellent resource. And of course, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the North Carolina Pediatric Society. Dr. Langdon, thank you for uh, sharing with us and we appreciate you being on the program. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
Southeastern believes it is important to support women as theologians and to equip them for service wherever their calling takes them. If God has called you to the ministry in the church, the academy, or at the home, Southeastern Seminary wants to equip you with the tools you need to fulfill your calling. With almost every degree available online, you can get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Use the waiver code Christ and Culture, all caps, no spaces, and Southeastern will waive your application fee. Now it's time for a new segment on Christ and Culture, which we're calling Ask the Profs. It's where you ask us a question about theology or culture or whatever else that you're interested in. We do our best to answer it. So, Dr. Keithley, here's today's question. I'm keen to hear your answer. How can churches navigate political differences between its church members? Oh, man. For the very first question, this is a very hard uh, one indeed. We face a a difficult challenge in these days. It's the difference between a break of a bone and a splintering. One could say that during uh, the time of the Civil War, there was a clear break. The North and South broke over the issue of slavery. But it was a very clear regional break over a very clear subject. As any doctor can tell you, it's one thing to set a bone that's been broken. It's another thing to deal with one that's been splintered. And that's what we're facing, is not just the polarization or the differences. I think, to take the analogy of a broken bone, that's exactly the analogy used by the Apostle Paul when he spoke to the Corinthian church in Corinthians chapter 1. And so I think that if there is a church in the New Testament that resembles the situation we're in today. It's the Corinthian uh, assembly because they were so fractured in so many ways. And I notice what the Apostle Paul does. He focuses first and foremost on Jesus Christ and him crucified. If we're going to have any kind of resolution to these kind of problems, it's going to be because we all once again put our eyes on Jesus. Having said that, he didn't shy away from the tough things that was dividing them. And so he addresses them, but he does so in a way that is patient, that is loving, yet at the end he always directs them back. It's really helpful, Doc, the the difference between a clean break, a clean cut, versus a splintering. It is complicated because it's one that if it's a clean break, you don't have to look at it very hard. You can see what's going on. The splintering you have to explore and, um, and sort of investigate quite a bit further. I wonder if to put further fine points on, on some practical to-dos, and, and as a pastor as well, one thing that I'm trying to be really mindful of in our congregation is, you know, every hot topic cultural conversation is not necessarily a hot topic in my church. And I'm trying to be real careful not to create a landmine between my people that wasn't there in the first place. So that's one thing. So one specific example would be critical race theory, CRT. It's a super hot topic. It's a really important conversation. But I guarantee you, um, if I were to take 100 people from my church, two of them probably know what that is and care anything about it. Exactly. So it's not necessary for me to then make a big issue out of something that for them right this second is not that big of an issue. If there is a big issue, first of all, I think pastorally, know your people well enough to know what, what are the issues, uh, whether it's a, a racial matter, whether it's a, a election season, that, that, that cycle creates problems, or maybe, it, maybe it's just college football season that gets people sideways with each other, whatever it is. And I would say create opportunities to have those conversations in ways that, first of all, don't abuse the pulpit. I'm not going to take the pulpit 
uh, unless unless it's an extreme situation, I'm not going to use the pulpit as the place to then kind of beat people up with my particular perspective about something. Instead, I might do something like a, a Sunday evening uh, event, and it may be a special called event, or it may seem like something that we need to do once a month, where it is, you know, submit what your concerns are, and then I'm then I'm able pastorally to see what those splinters are and to try to explore them further, get a sense of how serious and sensitive that this is for our people, and then to create a, a safe um, and sort of not not so charged environment to this just have a conversation, being willing to listen to each side and even to try to model that, which I know Dr. Keithley for the Center for Faith and Culture modeling how to have these conversations for you is just as important as what the conclusions to the questions are. Um, So those are just a couple of things I might recommend. Uh, Great advice. Great advice. Thank you for listening to Christ and Culture today. If you want to ask us a question, let us know on social media with the hashtag Christ and Culture. And if you enjoy what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast with a friend. We look forward to seeing you next week.